Today's message is called a stubborn heart. How many of you guys have ever heard the term stubborn? Like, you're so stubborn, you know, like that. Most of the time when you hear that term, it's in a negative way. Like, you're so stubborn, you know, or you're telling your teacher, you're so stubborn, you know, or something. I don't know. Hopefully those of you who are homeschooled aren't calling your teachers stubborn. That'd probably be a bad one. Uh, Anyways, uh, today's message is called a stubborn heart, a stubborn heart. Uh, today, I want to I wanna kind of just start by talking about a book I've been reading. Are any of you guys avid readers? Any avid readers? You read a lot? Not me. I'm not an avid reader. Um, is there anyone here that's a fast reader? Our, our senior pastor here, Pastor Dwayne, can cruise through books in a matter of days. Super fast reader, super effective. Uh, that is not me. I am what would you would call I'm I'm what you would call a slow reader. I'm the guy that reads a chapter and then has to reread it and then reread it again to understand what happened or a paragraph or something like that. Well, I've been trying. You want to hear how slow of a reader I am? About February, I decided I'm going to read one book a month for the rest of this year. And February to March, April, May, June, July, August, September, right? So I should be on my seventh book. I think I'm on my third. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) No, actually, I might be on my fourth. Uh, Anyways, the book I just started reading a couple weeks ago is called The Faith. This is by Chuck Colson. Any of you ever heard of Chuck Colson? He's a pretty awesome dude. He started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. This is a great a great book because it goes through, and actually I'll just read what it says. It says, what Christians believe, why they believe it, and why it matters. It kind of goes through some of the basic doctrinal things um, of Christianity. And the chapter I just started reading is talking about the Word of God. It's talking about the Bible. And uh, so, so I actually brought out my physical Bible so I can hold it while I'm talking about it. But it's talking about the Word of God. And he started out with a statistic that said this, six percent of Americans have a biblical worldview. Everyone say biblical world view. What that basically means is six percent of Americans, so however many millions of Americans are, six percent of them say, I think that the Bible is true and I'm going to use the Bible and the word of God as my way to see the world. Saying that we want to have our government set up like the Bible says government should should be. We want to have our lives set up like the Bible says our life should be, and so on and so forth. So it says 6%, and he quoted this. He said 6% of Americans. Everyone say six. Uh, I, I found that staggering, so what I did is I real quick went on and I said, well, if 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, I wonder how many, percentage-wise, Americans would classify themselves as Christians. Now, when, when, when someone hears that term, they say Christian, um, it kind of has some different things. So I just wanted to know, in general, how many people, percentage-wise, inside America consider themselves Christians? Because I said, well, 6% have a biblical worldview. And I looked up on abcnews.go.com. So it's ABC News. And uh, going through, and it says uh, a little study report, uh, asking Americans their religion, and you uh, ask re- Americans their religion, and you'll get an earful, 50 individual uh, 50 individual different types of answers. And it's going through, and then it says this. 
83% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. So I said, hold up for a second. 6% take the Bible and say, I'm going to view the world through the Bible as truth. Yet 83% call themselves Christians. Do you guys find that interesting? Let me say that again. 83% call themselves Christians, but only 6% view the world through the scripture. Say, I want to set up my life based on the scripture. I'm thinking, who could do quick math? What's the difference? Between, what's, what's 83 minus 6? What is it? 77. So my question is, what's up with the other 77 people? What is going on with the other 77% of people that say they're Christians, but they ignore what the Bible has to say as far as their worldview? I thought that's interesting. Do you guys find that? I find that interesting because here's the thing. A lot of people look at this book and they like the idea of a Christ. Do you guys know what the term Christ means? It literally means savior. They like the idea of a savior, but they reject the idea of God and God being Lord of your life. They say, well, the Bible's nice when it talks about Christ giving his life and us getting saved, but they reject everything in here that says you should live a certain way. There's a staggering difference between 6% and 83%. See, the problem is most people are very excited about the idea of Christ in and of itself, but they don't like the idea of living according to the Bible. So if you're taking notes today, right at the top, a stubborn heart, a stubborn heart. John 8, verse 32. John 8, 32, I'm going to read it in the NCV version. The NCV, John 8, 32 says this. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm going to read that again and then I'm going to ask you a question about it. Then you will know the truth. Everyone say truth. Then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Uh, When that says know the truth, is that talking about statistics and mathematics and knowing all these facts and knowing all this stuff? Is that what it's talking about? It's not talking about that, right? Exactly. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus was on earth, and this is what he said. He said, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we could take, and if we know that Jesus is the truth, we can insert Jesus' name there, because this is not talking about knowing facts and all this Stuff, it's more talking about having a relationship with God. It's saying when you know Jesus, when you know Jesus, he will set you free. Jesus, uh, right in the first book of, of uh, the first chapter of the book of John, says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus and the Bible are like identical. You can look at the Bible as a book with pages and writing. And if you look at it that way, you're going to read these things and you're going to think this is the world's 
hardest and worst behavior management program. Because if you look at the Bible as just all these different things you're not supposed to do or you're supposed to do, you're going to say, that's hard, that's ridiculous, I can never do it, and you're going to fall short every time. But when you take the Bible and say, okay, the Bible is Jesus in written form, so I'm going to put this with God's Spirit and I'm going to listen to it, and I'm going to seek him with everything I have, then this becomes life-giving. And the Bible says that you will know Jesus. How do we know Jesus? How do we know him? Anyone met him in person? Like physically, like walked up? Hey, Jesus, I'm Tim. What's going on? Anyone? Because if you did, that'd be pretty sweet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. We're hoping sometime soon. I'm looking at where the world's going, and I'm thinking real soon would be nice. Um, So it's not talking about knowing him physically. So how do you know Jesus? Well, there's a couple ways you can learn about him. First of all, you could pray and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, right? You could say, God, I want to know you more. Will you reveal yourself to me? But the main way that we're going to know Jesus is right here. This is the main way you get to know Jesus. You want to know what he thinks? Read this. You want to know how he feels about you? Read this. But how could people know that when only 6% of them look at this and say, I'm going to use this to, to see how I should view the world. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And there's a guy named Joseph Goebbels. And he said this, he said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. If, you, if, I could t- if I could sit there and tell all of you lies and keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, and in my voice, because of this amplified system, is loud enough for you to hear, eventually you'll start believing it. That's what he's saying. And obviously, I'm not going to sit there and tell you that two plus two is five. That's obviously not true. But what if you don't really know the truth and you're listening to someone saying it and they're saying it over and over and over again, eventually you're going to eventually people will come to believe it. So the question is this, when you hear something, how do you know that it's absolute truth? How do you know something is true? Like when you hear that some species in Africa is almost extinct, how do you know? Are you going to physically go there and search the jungles or the desert or whatever and count them? This is, this is an interesting thing to think about. How do you actually know the stuff that you're reading is truth? How do you actually know? Some of you might say, well, how about textbooks? Any, any of you guys got classes with textbooks right now? You got some classes with textbooks? Have you guys ever read a textbook? And obviously you guys get tested on it, right? Uh, the, you know, you, you, the t- teacher be like, okay, okay, class, why don't you go ahead and read chapters 7, 8, and 9, and we're going to have a quiz on them. Have you ever had this? You're going to have a quiz on it next week. Have you ever had it? When we read a textbook, yeah, okay, you're going to have a quiz on it, so what do, you, what do you have to do? You have to learn. You have to learn what those chapters are saying. But how do you know that those chapters are true? Have you guys ever... Have you ever flipped open to like the second or third page of a textbook and you see like, oh, it's Einstein, you know, I don't know, someone, some random person's last name, you know, book of evolution or book on biology or something. Let's just say that someone's book on biology. And then you go down and it says version 6.3. Have you guys ever seen this? When you look at textbooks, see, you guys look at textbooks and you probably don't even realize this. See, textbooks don't stay the same. 
if I went and grabbed a book from when I was in high school and plopped it on the table and grabbed the same book, well, the book for the same kind of class for you and put it on the table and we flipped through there, they would be so different. It's ridiculous because textbooks change constantly. You don't really realize this because the school provides the book for you, right? Do most of you guys, like the school gives you a book, like first day of class, here's your textbook for the year. Do they do that still? When you get in college, it's not like that. When you get in college, it's a little different. You show up for class and all of a sudden they'll say, okay, your textbooks, which you have to go buy is this book, this book, and this book. So you have to go out and buy three textbooks for, you know, your math class. And when you go buy those textbooks, they'll say, you want to make sure you have version and they'll tell you the version because what's happened is the book was written and it was printed. And then the next year they might've changed some stuff and they reprinted it. And now it's version 2.0. And then they changed just one chapter. So now it's 2.3 and now they change something else. So it becomes four and then it becomes five. And eventually you get like six or seven or eight changes. And now it's version 6.2. And what happens is you have class in you have your class and you go and you spend 150 bucks per textbook. So now you're at $450 for textbooks for this one class. And you go to sell them at the end of the year and they say they changed textbooks versions. So now yours are worth nothing. And it's like, oh man, well, this is the thing. Textbooks change versions because the world's view of truth is constantly shifting. If we went back long enough, the world would say the earth is flat, and if you sail too far, you'll fall off the end. Anyone worried about that recently? Anyone? You kind of worried about sailing out, you know? My wife and I just signed up for a cruise. We're going on a cruise, marriage cruise coming up in April. Uh, I'm not worried about the boat going the wrong direction and sailing off the end of the world. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they would have been. But now we know, so they went and changed all of the books that have the truth written in them, right? If you go back a little bit, they'll say that Pluto was a planet, and now I don't even know what it's called. I don't think it's a planet. It's a planet again? Is it back to a planet now? I don't See, I don't even know. <laughs> Anyways, textbooks change. What if I came in here next week? We won't be in here. Michael Jr. will. So what if, no, I'm not going to say this. What if, What if I came in here the next time we're in here and I held up my Bible and I said, this is Bible version 2.0 because we went and changed it and updated it so that it's all true. What would you say to me? Wouldn't you think that's ridiculous? You want to know what's funny to me? We take and we say textbooks are true and they change every two to three years. And we look at the Bible, which is exactly the same for thousands and thousands of years. But we wonder if it's true. Interesting thought. If you're taking notes, write down true or false. True or false for point number one, true or false. A couple years ago, I was at Grand Valley. My senior year is my fifth year of college at Grand Valley. My senior year, and I'm going through this class, and I have this, this religion class. It's like a world study of religions. I took a couple of them when I was there. And one of the chapters we went through, and we started going through different uh, religious texts, I'll say. Um, and one of those would have been the Bible. This is considered a religious text. And, and uh, 
pretty much every major religion of the world has different religious texts. So we go through all these other ones, and then we get to, stu- to looking at studying the Bible from a worldview perspective. And just to show you how textbooks, which claim to be true, might not necessarily be true, we're flipping through. And um, one thing I've done for a long time, and I, I don't do it as much now, but I, I still get into it, um, is I read a proverb a day. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the term, an apple a day keeps a doctor away? Uh, there's a there's a saying a proverb a day keeps the devil away. <laughs> Anyways, that was supposed to be funny. A uh, proverb a day keeps the devil away. Anyways, I know because I've done this. Uh, half of the months throughout the year have how many days? Thirty one, right? Half of the months throughout the year have thirty one days, and I know that on those months I can read every chapter of the Bible uh, of the book of Proverbs if I read one a day. So I know that there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Well, we're going through this class and we're doing all these studies on uh, the, the Bible, just looking at it from a world's perspective. And we get to this graph that's printed all nice and neat. And I truly believe that the person didn't intend to do this. But on the graph, I'm going down and I scroll down to the book of Proverbs because it says like all the, it says all the books of the Bible and how many chapters are in each one. And it's like, okay, 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 okay. And then we get to the book of Proverbs and it says 41. And I'm thinking, the book of Proverbs doesn't have 41 chapters and it's got 31. And then I go and I look a couple books above. It says the book of Job, which most of you would probably look and say Job. Anyways, the book of Job. And it says 31. And I'm thinking, the book of Job does not have 31. It's got 41. So I, what do I do? Class gets done. I grab that book and I walk right on up to the professor and I lay it on her desk and I'm like, I found an error in your textbook. She's like, what? And I flip it open and then I grab out my Bible because I've got my Bible. I grab my Bible and I set it on there and I say, see right here, it says Proverbs 41 and Job 31. And I flip to the book of Proverbs and I say, there's 31. Flip to the book of Job 41. I said, these are flipped. And she kind of looks at me in shock. And then she's like, I know the person that wrote this book. So she calls up the person that wrote it, gets it changed. What do they do? Print a new textbook next year. So I made it so everyone else's textbook was worthless. Anyways, sometimes we look at textbooks and say, smart people wrote them so they must be full of truth. But smart people make mistakes. I don't think they intentionally did that, but it happened. And we look at the Bible and we question it. So how do you know if something is true or not? See, what we honestly have to do is we have to take a look and we have to say, what is truth? Jesus said he is truth. And when we look at the Bible, the Bible is Jesus in written form. So what we honestly have to do before we can ask the question of what is truth, we have to ask the question is, what is this to me? What is the Bible to me? You could be in many different classes. You can look at this and you could say, you want to know what? I think it's a good book. I think it's got some good sayings in it. I think some smart people put it together. Okay. I mean, there's some nice stuff like love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you want others to do unto you. Nice. Feels good. I'll take that. We could look at this and say, you want to know what? I believe maybe half of it in there, but mm, the other half of it I don't like, you know, some of that stuff, whatever. Thou shalt not kill my enemies. I don't know. It's 
kill people. But anyway, um, or we could look at this and say, you want to know what? The stuff in there, some of it I might not understand. Some of it I do. But either way, I view this as truth. And we have to ask ourselves where we're going to put this in our life. Are we going to let the Bible just be a book? Or are we going to let that be what we live our life by? Because the question is, do we trust God or do we not? We all have an opportunity sitting right here right now to decide to trust God or not. We could say, God, doesn't matter. Or God, I trust you. Several, several years ago, when I was like 12, 13, so it was more than a several years ago. Most of you are probably 12 or 13 right now. Anyway, so when I was your age, uh, I didn't grow up going to church, didn't, didn't ever attend a church. I went on Christmas a couple times, Easter's here or there, and maybe a wedding or a funeral. So I didn't know much about God. I was kind of ignorant. Have you guys ever heard that term, ignorant? I was kind of ignorant to God and, and who he was. I had an idea of maybe a God, but I didn't have any uh, real knowledge to back it up. Well, I'm sitting in my living room. Uh, my good friend Patrick Konechny is about to step up here in a few minutes and do some worship is, is there. And uh, my brother, AJ, who's a couple years older than me, is standing there. And we start having a guy conversation. Uh, this is what the extent of our guy conversation. I think uh, girls do have these kind of conversations, but I think it's more of a guy thing. We were talking about, well, what would happen if the world like blew up or became uninhabitable or like there was a nuclear holocaust or whatever, you know? Okay, who's had a conversation like that? Okay, couple girls, three girls and most of the guys. Uh, We're having one of those conversations and what any guy would do, he's probably trying to, we're trying to solve it, you know? We're 13 we're 12, 13, and 15. We can solve this, you know? Uh, so we start solving the problem. Well, the, the most likely conclusion is we get in a spaceship and go to Mars, right? You know, however that would work, we go to Mars. So, so uh, we imagine ourselves living on Mars. And, and then I begin to have a conversation with Patrick, who Patrick grew up going to church. He, he knows a lot about God. Uh, I'm ignorant of God. I do not know really anything. He's asked me to church, but I always have a good excuse why not to come. You know, like, dude, I'm playing video games, man. Uh, back off. Uh, Mario Kart, come on, dude. Uh, so anyways, we're having this conversation, and then I, 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 now I look at it, and I wonder how these words even came out of my mouth. Uh, let me give you some background to my thought process. Okay, well, God is God of this world. He's on this world. So if this world was gone, there would be no God. So then I made a comment to Patrick. Well, if we lived on another, if we lived on Mars, there wouldn't be a God. And, and Patrick kind of looks at me like, what? And, and uh, my brother kind of looks at me like, yeah, what are you thinking? Uh, I had no, forgive me, I had no knowledge of God. What the Bible said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I wasn't free because I didn't know. So, so what, and actually this is the beginning of my salvation story. I realized right there, how can I choose to completely follow a God or not follow a God that I have not sought out to figure out who he actually is? So what happened is questions start rattling around in my head through a couple of years. And then when I'm, when I'm 16, just turned 16 is when I actually get saved. But it all started with a realization that I had no idea who or what God was. I had no idea. And how can I choose to follow him? 
See, people are trying to play the ignorance card like I was. Well, I don't know who God is, so I'm not responsible to follow him. But it all comes down to this question. Where do you put this Bible in your life? Is this just a book that sits on your nightstand and collects dust? Or is this truth? Here's the thing. If you're sitting in here and saying this is truth, then you have an obligation and a responsibility to take everything in it as truth and to follow it. Now, you're not gonna be perfect. We all fall short. We all make mistakes, but you have an obligation to follow everything that's in here. That means when it says, obviously you guys aren't married, so I'm gonna speak just something that just applies to the married individuals in this room. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means I have a responsibility to love my wife who's sitting right back there. I have a responsibility to to love her as Christ loved the church. Well, what'd he do? He laid his life down for her. He laid everything. Christ could have lived comfortably on the earth for a long time, and he laid it all down so that his church, that's us, could be made perfect. I have a responsibility to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Do you think there were times when Christ didn't, what he, when he was going to the cross, he said, Father, if there's another way, let it be. That tells me that that was a hard thing to do. I've got the same responsibility to love my wife the same way. There are gonna be times when you're reading this book and you come across something and someone did something evil to you. I don't care what it is. The Bible says that you are called to forgive them. And that's gonna be hard. But it all starts with a question of where do you put that book in your life? You know, as we're talking about how textbooks change and, and all that stuff. Um, how many of you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they were scrolls found by the Dead Sea. That makes sense. Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls changed everything. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they thought that the book, the Bible, as in a book and its context and its pages were, you know, a couple thousand years old, maybe. That's what they thought. Um, Obviously, the New Testament's newer because it was written after Jesus was born. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls kind of changed a lot. The Dead Sea Scrolls, to give you some background information, we're going to wrap up with this. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a boy who was a shepherd playing on a hillside. Young boy, shepherd, young shepherd boy. He was playing on a hillside by the Dead Sea and he was taking rocks. I mean, what does every boy do when there's rocks on the ground? You throw them and you find targets to hit, right? So he's sitting there and there's small openings on like the side of the hill and there's a small opening and he's taking rocks and he's throwing them into it and he misses and he throws one. He's like, yeah, I got one. And I don't know how long he was there. Anyways, he grabbed one and he chucked it into there. And when it went into there, instead of hitting other rocks, he heard a pot shatter, like a a clay pot. So he goes up there and he kind of looks in. Well, starting at that point for like the next 10 years, they're unearthing that area and they find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scrolls. And all these scrolls are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it's, it's the Bible from back then, you know, it's scripture. It's all this same stuff. So they're finding all these different chunks, chunks of scripture. And some of them they can read real easy and, and some of them they can't. And, uh, 
one of the Dead Sea Scrolls has the text from Psalms 22. And I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to ask you what you think it's saying. Psalms 22, I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, My strength is dried up like a, uh, like a post uh, a shepherd. Um, it says, And my, my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And then in verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And then this is the the sentence I want you to, to hear. It says, They pierced my hands and my feet. Pierced hands and pierced feet. What's it talking about? Jesus on the cross. You want to know something interesting? Uh, it's called crucifixion, right? Crucifixion started, the first recorded crucifixion happened around 1,000 BC, or not 1,000, excuse me, 100 BC, 100 years before Christ, maybe a little bit before that, you know, but to make it easy for us, 100 years before Christ, 100 years before Christ. Well, when they unearth these Dead Sea Scrolls, it allows them to not only read the text on there and find out that it matches identically, what can they do with documents? They can date them, right? So they could finally date some of these. And what the amazing thing is, this Psalms 22 document that they found when they dated it, it didn't only date to 100 BC, it dated all the way back to about 400 BC. Psalms 22, they weren't sure if it was written around the time when crucifixion was popular or well after that, or well, well, now they know that it's at least written 300 years before crucifixion actually happened. So we could take this book, the Bible, and it does two things. We could say, not only has this been the same for 100 years, not only 500 or 1,000 or 2,000, we can say this book, there's portions of this book that are exactly the same from at least 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. That's a long time. I've yet to find a biology book that's not been changed in 3,000 years. Just saying. But it also does another thing. It tells us that not only was Jesus' crucifixion predicted right before he was crucified, no, it was at least five, 600 years before he was crucified. And they didn't even know what crucifixion was. So not only is this Bible accurate over a time period, it's also accurate in predicting and prophesying what's going to happen in the future. Let me, let me give you a good context of what that would look like. How many of you guys have iPhones? Hold them up if you got them in here. Uh, anyone got like the iPhone 1 in here still? The first original iPhone? Anyone? iPhone 2. You got the iPhone 1? All right, no. iPhone 1, iPhone 2. Where's iPhone 2 at? Anyone got an iPhone 2? How about a 3? Wow, you guys are like, you're trendy. 4s? iPhone 4? I like how you all know this. Uh, Okay, how about a 5? Anyone got a 5? How about a 6? Okay, Uh, Dustin, can I see your phone? (laughs) I'm going to see how indestructible it is. No, Uh, this is an iPhone 6. Can we all sit here and agree that this just came out like not too long ago, right? 
you know, six, six months. These are like relatively new. Um, the prediction of what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls 400 years before crucifixion happened would be about the same as finding a letter from George Washington to his wife talking about the iPhone 6. Because it's about the, let me, let me say that again. What happened when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and found it actually time period and they date them, the prediction of the crucifixion of Christ is about equivalent to George Washington writing a letter to his wife about something that happened this year. Does that blow anyone's mind? Because that blows my mind. So it all comes down. I'll give you your phone back so I don't break it. You're like, why are you flinging it around like that? So it all comes down to this. What is this to you? What is this Bible to you? Where do you put this in your life? Have you guys ever heard the term stalwart? If you have, it'd be awesome. Anyone stalwart? Stalwart. Yeah, like four people. Uh, Everyone say it. It's a fun word to say. Stalwart. I'm going to teach you vocabulary lesson. Stalwart. Uh, Stalwart is a word that kind of means, it means stubborn in a good way which is kind of opposite of what you would think. Um, Stalwart in a good way. If you define, if you look it up on Google, go on dictionary.com, I don't care where you look it up. This is what the definition of stalwart means. It means loyal, reliable, and hardworking. Those are three good words, right? It means loyal, reliable, and hardworking. If you want synonyms, sounds like, Cinnamon, but it's synonyms. Synonyms are things such as loyal, faithful, committed. Listen to some of these words. Devoted, dedicated, dependable, reliable, steady, consistent, trustworthy, solid, hardworking, steadfast. It's a good word, steadfast. And then how about this? Unwavering. If you guys are taking notes, point number two is unwavering. We have to decide after, I should say this, after we decide where the Bible fits in our life, if we decide to say, God, I'm going to stand on that and I'm going to believe that that's true, we have to decide to be stalwart in our relationship with God. We have to be stalwart in how we view God. We have to be unwavering. We're coming up into a time where people are starting to question anything and everything that has to do with the Bible. And we have to be stalwart. We have to be unwavering, unmoving. I'm going to need I'm going to need a couple people. First I'm going to need Dustin. Can you come up here? I'm going to I'm going to do a little illustration for a second. Um when I was in <coughs> when I was in uh my second in third year of college, I was at Michigan State for the first three, and then I transferred to Grand Valley. So my second and third year of college, I had to take a couple classes that were physics classes. Anyone in here in a physics class or anything like it? Okay. Physics is, physics is a, basically it's studying forces. So like this chair, if I want to move it, I push it, and the, how hard I push it, and the force I put on it makes it move. And it's kind of studying all that kind of stuff. Well, when we got into physics a little bit, we learned about this little thing called the coefficient of friction. Everyone say friction. 
Now take your hands and rub them together really fast, as fast as you can. You feel they're starting to heat up? That's because of friction. Okay, stop. Because y'all look funny. No, I'm joking. Um, there's something called the coefficient of friction. Uh, what it means is the higher coefficient of friction, the harder something is to move. Can I get you to help me for a second? I want you, I want you to, from this side, push Dustin that way on that table. Okay. Okay. Okay, so she can move it. Uh, now hold up for a second. Dustin, stay right there. Now push it. Just keep going. Think football. Go, 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 go. Go, 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 go. <laughs> All right. What, what's, what's causing it so she can't push us? You've been eating too many donuts, Tim. <laughs> what's making it so we, What was that? Yeah, we're making it, but it's the friction, right? Okay, imagine for a second that now we're on an ice rink. Would she be able to push us? Why? Well, I mean, the, yeah, the reason she could push us on an ice rink and can't on carpet is because of that little thing called friction. The coefficient, thank you, you guys could sit down. The coefficient of friction when you're on an ice rink is like nothing. But as you get on carpet, and other things, it's higher. This week, I've been helping Pastor Daniel roof a house. I found out the coefficient of friction is much higher when I'm walking on shingles than when I'm trying to step off from shingles onto wet wood. Wet wood is slippery, especially when the angle's like this that you're trying to walk on a roof. I didn't fall off. Thank the Lord for safety harnesses and such. Um, how about this? In our relationship with God, We have to be unwavering, which means we have to have a high coefficient of friction in our relationship with him. Meaning that we're not swayed to the left or to the right. Meaning that it's super hard to push us. Though something may come that will challenge us, like Maddie coming up and trying to push Dustin and I on the table that's upside down. Something may come up and try to challenge us, but we have to choose to be steady in our beliefs. To be unwavering, unmoving, stalwart. Hosea 4.6. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of God, I will also ignore your children. If you look at it in a different version, because the Bible was written in a different language, there's multiple ways to translate it. So you can go word for word or thought for thought, or you could take a sentence and make it, make it the same. So in English, we get different versions. Uh, one of the versions is called the NLT, the New Living Translation. The reason I like this, this version is because it's written at a sixth grade reading level. Any of you guys in here in sixth grade? Maybe, maybe no, okay. Uh, I'm in sixth grade when it comes to reading level, I found out. So I like this version. It's just really simple. And listen to, listen to how it says that first sentence. Hosea 4, 6 in the NLT says, says, My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. God is saying people are destroyed because they don't know him. So the question is this. So we go all the way back to the beginning. Bible says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
God right here says, those who don't know him are being destroyed. So the question is this, how do we know God? Because we have to choose to know him. And it all starts with where you view this book. Is this a book to you? Or is this the living and active word of God that's sharper than a two-edged sword that's changing your life? There's nothing sadder than people who think they know God, but they don't actually know who he is. They have an idea, but they don't know him personally. This is how you know God, right here. This is it. This is word written on paper that can change your life with the spirit of God behind it. Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes? So where is the Bible for you? Where is it? When you look at the Bible, do you think, man, that's a nice book and it's got some nice sayings in it? When you look at it, do you think, man, that looks like hard stuff to do? Or when you look at it, do you say, that is what I base my life?